Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we often hear about being fools for Christ, but are we willing to be failures for Christ? We talk about this subject with Pastor Christian Kuhn, a United Methodist minister and co-founder of the Urban Village Church in Chicago. He's the author of the new book, Failing Boldly, How Falling Down in Ministry Can Be the Start of Rising Up. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Christian Kuhn. He's a United Methodist minister and has been a pastor since 1998. He's co-founder of Urban Village, an inner-city multi-site church here in Chicago. He's a native Iowan who worked in the not-for-profit public relations and journalism fields before going into church ministry. He's the author of the new book, Failing Boldly, How Falling Down in Ministry Can Be the Start of Rising Up. Reverend Christian Kuhn, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. So I want to start out by talking about my family. I have a seven-year-old daughter, and the other day she came to me, and she was talking about an assignment that she was doing for school, and she's seven years old, and she said, Papa, I've got to do this right, because if I don't do everything right, then I'm going to fail. Mm. And what I got from that, and I, I, I got that in the context of, of reading your new book, Failing Boldly, one of the things that, that I took away from that was already at seven, she has begun to internalize that any slip-up equals complete failure. Yeah. And so I, that's where I want to start. Like when we talk about failing and when we talk about failing boldly, I think a lot of my listeners are going to be very hesitant to even begin to dive into this subject because they're just so scared and they start being scared from such a young age. And so what should I say to my daughter when she says to me, one slip-up equals complete failure? I think what I would do with my own child is probably tell a story of myself failing to help her realize that it's not the end of the world and then begin to talk about and reflect on what are some things that we might learn if we don't do this well the first time and then kind of take it through the next steps to show her that not doing well in this test is not the end of the world. You might learn some things too. And also perhaps you could throw in what does it say about us and the core of who we are too at a seven-year-old level. But so those are some things I think that come to mind. Do you encounter these kind of moments with your own members of your congregation, the people who come to Urban Village? Do you hear stories also of them being afraid of even trying because they're afraid of failing? Yeah, I think what we hear a lot of, too, is we have a fairly large LGBT population at Urban Village, and we have folks who struggle sometimes with thinking about failing at work or in school, but also we have a lot of folks who come to us who have been told that they are failures because of their sexual orientation 
or because they didn't do church well when they were growing up, or they did something. So it's it's more, for some folks, it's a sense of the core of who they are, that they see themselves as failure, as opposed to doing something incorrectly. And so when you encounter someone who has internalized so completely the notion of being a failure, because we're not just talking about failing, but what I just heard in your response was, there are some people that we encounter who have told themselves a story or have been a to- or who have been told a story so deeply that they start to say this is the way that I am described that failure is a part of who I am that seems to me to be not just a moment that we would have a personal or a psychological need for response but there's also a theological mm-hmm. need for response in that moment isn't there yeah absolutely and i think in the book uh, the second chapter is talking about what does it mean to be a beloved child of god and For me, you would think after being in the ministry for so long that that would be a given. But it really has only been the last few years where that has really sunk in for me and allowed me to fail more and to be okay with that, to really know and believe that I'm a beloved child of God no matter what. Uh, And then that's what I try to let folks know too, even though they may have heard it growing up, they may have heard that God loves you. I don't think some folks believe it. And still have this sense, and maybe this is an American thing, they still feel like, I have to do X, Y, and Z. I have to excel at these things. Then I'll believe that I'm a beloved child of God. Well, let's take a step back and talk a little bit about you and your background. So you mentioned that you've been a minister for a long time. It's been close to 20 years Mm -hmm. now, since 1998. What was it that got you to move out of the nonprofit world where you had you had been working? Can you tell us a little bit about what your call process was like? How how did you know that this was what you needed to do next? Sure. Yeah, I grew up in the church and so was pretty active as a youth. And in fact, I preached a sermon when I was about in seventh grade. And remember, after that sermon, there was a retired German pastor who came up to me and told me to think about the ministry. And of course, as a 12-year-old, I was like, no way. But I had a sense that my faith would do something with what I would do for a living. And so after I uh, was in the public relations field, I wanted to go to journalism school and got in at Northwestern. And at the time, Northwestern had a double master's program with Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. And so this was in the mid-90s. And so I thought, perfect, this is exactly what I want to do with my life. So I went through that whole process It was at the time that I was writing about stories, uh, writing stories about religion and about faith and church, that I started feeling like I want to do more than just write about this, but be more intimately involved in people's lives. So I did a little bit of a shift in my studies and went down the Masters of Divinity and Ordination track. And uh, my wife, bless her, was on board with that, even though when we got married, me going to the ministry was not part of the deal. And uh, so I did some internships and then started, pastored a small church in the near western suburbs here in Chicago and took it from there. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. We're speaking today with the Reverend Christian Kuhn. He's the author of the new book, Failing Boldly, How Falling Down in Ministry Can Be the Start of Rising Up. Are you a lifelong United Methodist or did you come to that at some other point? No, pretty much lifelong. Okay. And so for for our listeners who have never gone through the United Methodist call process, are there a lot of hoops to jump through or do you merely need to stand up one day and say, the light has shown upon me <laughs> and now you need to ordain me? Like, how does that work? Yeah, I think there are probably many people who in the process who would wish it was that easy. It's a fairly long process. Lots of different committees to meet with and mentors to to meet with and tests to take. And of course, you have to get a Master's of Divinity degree. So yeah, it's a long process. And to be honest, when I first went into the church, I thought, well, I'll get ordained, and then I'll do what I really want to do. And I found myself 
really kind of enjoying local church pastorate and doing that. So that was a surprise to me and have been in, you know, for, like I said, for like you said, for the last 20 years or so. And so when you are working as a pastor, I imagine that there are things that are very easy. You have certain skill sets that are, that sort of fall into your wheelhouse. There may be other things that you struggle with. As you have been maturing as a pastor over these 20 years, what have been some of the things that have surprised you? that you've learned about in ministry that you didn't know when you first got in? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's a generalist position. And I think for a lot of folks, they assume there's the preparing the sermon part, there's leading some small group of Bible studies part, maybe you have to go to a a committee meeting or two. But especially my first church, I remember having to do things like uh, when the basement flooded and having to be on call and get a bucket and bail out the basement or knowing how the boiler works. Or, you know, just doing all of these things that it's a common refrain. They didn't teach us in seminary, these things. And so finding myself enjoying the diversity of all the things that you need to have and learn. And I think, too, it's been at times a little frustrating, but also kind of wonderful to see humanity uh, in all of its glory and in all of its frustration and that, too, just how different people are. And to be honest, how broken people are, too. Um, I think there'd be times when people would come into my office when I had an office at a church and they would, I would, from the outside, they look like they have it all together. And then they would break down talking about uh, their marriages are breaking apart or the struggles that they're having with their faith. And initially I thought, wow, I, I can't believe that. And then the more experience I had, I realized, wow, everybody's broken in some form or fashion. And so I just need to hold that and be there for them. That must be a tremendous responsibility to have to bear on your shoulders. There's a point in, in your book, Failing Boldly, where you talk about the moment when you were ordained, when mm-hmm. hands were laid upon you and a big booming voice said, you now have the authority mm-hmm. to do this. And you, you mentioned that that's a touchstone moment and that you even go to other moments of confirmation of ministry for other ministers, I think, to get—I read it as being kind of re-energized— but I'm I'm wondering, just in, in the context of what you just said, where someone comes and literally unburdens their life to you, and it's falling apart, and they really show you the most intimate parts of their being at that moment, do you find yourself going back to those, because that would make me very nervous, mm-hmm. do you find yourself going back to those moments of, of literal confirmation and saying, okay, I, I'm not doing this on my own authority, but there are others who have seen me, who have tested me, and who are looking and are saying, we have your back, but we believe that you can do this. Is that a fair way to characterize? Yeah, I think so. And to be honest, I also, to go along with the book, I go back to my failures. Uh, in my initial part of my career, seminary students often will go through what's called clinical pastoral education, and I did mine at a hospital. And I just remember those were those initial, like, who am I to be in this person's room when they are at death's door. Who am I to be in this room when folks are just mourning the loss of a loved one? And I made so many mistakes in those early days. And so I go back to those moments and realize, like, even though I um, did those things incorrectly by the book, still God was present. So it's a, a reminder, too, of my own humility and that no matter what I do or how I am, God will still be there. And so those moments give me comfort, to be honest, in addition to the things like remembering when someone laid hands on me, or I remember early on when I, we were starting this new church, and there were moments where it seemed like no one was interested at all in what this new church was going to be all about. And I remember one day going home, and my previous church had given me this really lovely scrapbook of pictures of me and really uh, affirming notes. And I'd look at the pictures of this person in a robe and a stole, and he just seemed so unfamiliar. 
uh, because I was doing this new thing so apart from what I was doing. And so that was a, a reminder to me like, okay, I've done this before. I'm not a total failure at this. And uh, so those touchstone moments do help. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Christian Kuhn. He's co-founder of Urban Village Church here in Chicago. And he's the author of the new book, Failing Boldly, How Falling Down in Ministry Can Be the Start of Rising Up. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Christian Kuhn, co-founder of Urban Village Church here in Chicago. He's the author of the new book, Failing Boldly, How Falling Down in Ministry Can Be the Start of Rising Up. So you and some of your co-founders said, we think that Chicago is a ripe mission field for a new church. And you very boldly went into the process of starting this new church. But for our listeners who haven't read your book yet, Failing Boldly, I wonder if you could sort of step through some of the process that you went through in founding Urban Village, some of the struggles and some of the successes. Sure. So for those who don't know, the United Methodist Church is divided up into different geographic areas called conferences. And like any good church body, there are lots of committees. And so I was on a committee that was looking in our conference for what are areas for us to start a new church. And I remember reading a magazine article in Chicago Magazine about the South Loop neighborhood and how it was America's hottest neighborhood. And at the time, I thought we, as the United Methodist Church, should maybe think about starting a church there. And I think that was the first little seed that was planted. Not long after that, there was a two-year training for people who might be interested in church planting. At the time, I didn't really—I always pictured a church planter would be this wildly charismatic person, glad-handing everybody on the street. And I'm a little bit more of an introvert, and so I thought— I don't know if that's me, but I thought the training would be interesting. So I went through that two-year process along with Trey Hall, who's the other co-founder of the church, and Trey was a good friend of mine. And so we went through this together along with some other folks. And near the end of it, we started talking about what would it mean for us to do something together. And so then we started dreaming, what kind of church would we want in Chicago? And we felt like there was a need for a church that could be uh, radically inclusive of all folks while also being full of joy and life and knew the difference the gospel could make in people's lives and also be multi-site. We really, be, especially for Chicago, a city of neighborhoods, we wanted to be a church that reflected the context of the area where it was. So that was the dream. And we went to our bishop and other folks in our conference, and they eventually gave it the green light. I think what often happens for planters is they have this really wonderful vision, and we have this long document of here's how it's going to be, and these are the people we want to reach. And so every church planter starts off with wonderful vision and excitement and energy, and people are praying for you and patting you on the back. And then about a month later after that, uh, after all the fanfare has died, and you have all these meetings and you set up coffees and do all the networking, but you're still, there's no one who's right away saying, thank you, Lord, for you and for starting this church. This is, I've been praying for this, and that really doesn't happen very often. In your book, you even tell a story about you set up, and I, I think you 
did it through maybe meetup.com right. or something where you have a you you put out the word in cyberspace that you're going to have a meeting at a coffee shop I think it's just down on State Street, you yeah. said. And you said, okay, and we're going to, anybody who wants to have this new church here in the South Loop, just come and, and have coffee with us. And having started some projects myself, I so resonated with the way that you described this because you were, in your mind's eye, you were sort of thinking about all the people that would come flooding in and you wouldn't have enough seats. <laughs> but then what happened was, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, either very few or no one showed up that first one time. One person. One person. Yeah. Yeah. And... How did you, since we're talking about your book and the context of the book is failure and how one sort of works with failure, how did you process that? It's hard. And I think that uh, in, in the book, I talk about how we made this little paper tent that said new church or something like that. And then just as the night went on and that little tent kept sagging, which also our hopes for this new thing, I think it was a probably a pretty good lesson early on that this is not going to come easily and that we will have to be so dependent on God more so than anything in our lives. And that's the way it was. And it also helped me reframe how I would meet with folks, too. I'll confess that initially when I would meet with folks, my hope was that they would hear about this new church and they would want to sign on that day. And when that didn't happen, it was almost as if God was saying, you know, it might be helpful for you just to learn how I am working in this person's life. It may not be for your church, but it might be for some other reason too. And once I had that shift, uh, that helped quite a bit to see how can I help this person either explore or deepen their own faith. It may not be with me, but it might be in some other ways too. And so that was that was really helpful. One of the bright lines that you and your co-founder, Reverend Trey Hall, set in place was that you were adamant that you wouldn't be poaching members from other churches when you were trying to build this church. Could you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, understandably, there are folks who, in, in lots of churches, when, you, when a new church comes along, and it may seem like they're the, the new flavor of the month, there's a temptation to be anxious or fearful that your own members will leave the, the new thing. And so whenever we would start a new location, we did our best to meet with other, especially United Methodist pastors in the area, to explain who we were, what we were doing, try our best to say, we are not here to take your folks. What we are offering probably may be different than what you are offering. And I think really, for the most part, we've had some really good collaboration with other, especially United Methodist pastors, and they have been supportive. Tell me about some of those first meetings, like help me help me, and help our listeners to sort of envision, because maybe they, as they're listening, they have some big dream that they want to see come to fruition, and they just don't even know what the first steps will look like. So what was it like to go from that one person showing up and the little paper tent kind of flattening on the table over, over the course of the evening to actually having the beginnings of success? One of the trainings that we went through was community organizing training. And so that actually, that's one of the things that we tell sometimes now that we've been established and had some success, uh, pastors will call us or reach out to us and they'll want to know the secret. And there really is no secret, but we do encourage folks to think about exploring what is community organizing and how can it relate to being in local ministry. And so one of the key components of community organizing is the individual meeting and talking with folks for about a half hour or so and just asking them, what are the things that make them tick? What are their own dreams and hopes? What's the common question that I sometimes ask is, what keeps you up at night? And that can be something very exciting, or it can also be something that brings them a lot of anxiety. And so when you sit down with someone and you let them know that you are worth listening to, that's really uh, appealing. And so folks feel like they can begin to share. And out of those meetings, that really helps us to not only get to know the neighborhood and the city, 
But also it helps the person realize like, huh, I am somebody, I have some meaning and I have some things that I can offer in this world. And so they may not connect with us necessarily, but hopefully it helps them rethink who they are in the eyes of God. If I'm hearing you correctly, good church planning starts with relationship building and listening to people. <laughs> no, with crazy talk. I know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not with demographic analysis. As well, there's it. a little bit of that too, but I think... I do think that people sometimes get caught up in the bells and whistles. They think that you need the awesome webpage and the 10,000 followers on Twitter and all these other things. And certainly you need to pay attention to that. But it keep for us anyway, it just kept getting back to those meetings with individuals. And you never know where those meetings will go. In the book, I tell this story of in that same bookstore, actually, where that we had that first failed meeting and had a meeting with a guy. We were in the same fraternity, and I had reached out to him, and we didn't know each other, but we met, and as we were talking, we were back in the book stacks because we couldn't find anywhere to sit down. And he was asking, he was beginning to ask about the church, and I was just telling him very generally what it was about. And I said something, what I thought was offhandedly, saying, you know, we just want this to be a church where people know that God loves them. Very basic one-on-one things. And tears started coming down his eyes because— for whatever reason, at that moment, he just had never, it had never sunk in for him that that could be a possibility. And that made me realize like, whoa, this is, this is pretty powerful. What, uh, not just what we're doing, but how God can work in these out of the way places. If you think about a city like Chicago, where, and often for for our listeners who are not from Chicago, oftentimes it's referred to as Chicago land, because Mm. in addition to the city, there are all these counties that sort of ring around the city. And all told, there's probably about 12 million people that are here. And you would think that in a city of 12 million people, you would never feel alone, Mm. and you would always feel like you had some way to connect and some group to connect with. But the opposite, in fact, can be true, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that is something that I learned pretty quickly in the first 12 years or so. I lived in the Chicagoland area. I lived in the suburbs. And so moving into the city in 2009 was my first experience of actually living in the city. And I think I had that same perception at first, too. I mean, there are millions of people here. It would be easy, should be easy to connect. But I think loneliness is one of the the biggest issues that people struggle with when you live in the city, especially for folks who move to Chicago. It's We reach a lot of folks who just graduate from, say, a Big Ten school, and they want to go to Chicago and, and live that life. And it's a struggle because I don't know if it's tied into this day and age of social media, but I think some folks struggle to how to make a new friend. Hopefully, we can be a place to help along, help them build friendships along with building a faith. Well, you mentioned your congregant, the person who you were talking to in the bookstore coffee shop, who had never heard the message of the love of God before and who broke down in tears. And earlier in the conversation, you mentioned also the effect that societal pressures and societal condemnation can have on LGBT populations. And so it seems like you found a very rich mission field, and it sounds to me like you really identified that part of your ministry was going to be not poaching other Christians to a better service or or a more flashy liturgy, but instead to really reach out to the lost and to reach out to the broken. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to ask you a delicate question. That doesn't always play well with the administrative and hierarchical the higher-ups in churches, in various denominations. Did you get support once you discerned that that was your ministry, that we are to reach the lost and the broken, and even those that that maybe in some ways other wings of our church might be saying need to be condemned? Yeah. I think in our in our case, we have been s- supported. I, to be honest, I think, especially for mainline denominations like United Methodist or the 
Presbyterian Church USA or Episcopalian or the uh, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, because so many of these denominations are in decline, to be honest. I think they've gotten to a point where anything that works is great. <laughs> and so uh, so we have been supported. I think one of the one of our little taglines early on that we talked about is that we like to think that we can be a place for people who've either been bored or burned by religion in the past. And um, and so I think we've been that place for folks who either felt like their their faith wasn't relevant at all or for folks who felt like because they've been kicked out of their church that there wasn't a place for them uh, in this world. And because we've been doing this for so long, I just assume that that's a given, that people know that that uh, shouldn't be the case. But I'm learning over and over. Every year we walk in the Pride Gay Pride Parade and we hand out little flyers about our church. And every year, it happened this past summer, people will look at this and think, I, this can't be true, that, there, that there's a place for me in a, in a church of all places. Uh, and it just reminds me, like, we still have a lot of work to do. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Christian Kuhn. He's, fa- he's co-founder of Urban Village Church here in Chicago, and he's the author of the new book, Failing Boldly, How Falling Down in Ministry Can Be the Start of Rising Up. We'll be back in a moment. I just wanted to take a moment and give a quick shout out and thank you to our Patreon supporters. Now, if you don't know what this platform is, it's a way for you to regularly give contributions that support our work every time that we release a new episode. It costs you just a little bit, like maybe the cost of a latte a month, maybe a dollar an episode, but it adds up because it aggregates with all the other people and ends up being a nice sum for us. Many of you have stepped up. We've only been doing this for a few weeks, but already the numbers are there, and I appreciate it so much. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, you can do it very easily. Just go to patreon.com. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash notseenradio. Thank you always for listening, and thank you especially for your support. We really do appreciate it. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with the Reverend Christian Kuhn. He's co-founder of the Urban Village Church here in Chicago, and he's author of a wonderful new book, Failing Boldly, How Falling Down in Ministry Can Be the Start of Rising Up. You mentioned that members of Urban Village Church are regular attenders at the Gay Pride Parade. And I have evangelical listeners who will listen to that and say the only reason to go to a gay pride parade is to tell the people that they need to change Mm. and to tell the people fundamentally that they are in sin and to tell the people fundamentally that they are wrong thinking about their basic sexuality, their basic way of approaching relationships, and their basic way of thinking about God if they think about God at all. Okay, so that's what some of my listeners are going to want to make sure that I put out there to say. And so given that that is the position that some of my listeners would take, how would you respond to that kind of Christian position? Fairly often we'll get emails or Facebook messages or from folks who will express those positions. And we always try to sit down with folks and begin to explore the process of, all right, let's take a look at the scriptural passages that you're, you're basing your beliefs on, and let's really explore uh, what those passages mean, what they meant when they were written, what they mean for us today, looking at other passages too. And so we, I always like to sit down and really explore what does the Bible mean for you? How do you interpret it? Uh, and then looking at those specific passages to see is this really when Paul takes a look at this issue in Romans 1, when Paul is, is talking about this issue, does Paul have in mind what a faithful, same-gender loving couple would have in the 21st century? And so begin to have those conversations with folks looking just at the Bible. 
And then, too, I think it's important, for, at least for me in my own story, to see the the fruit of faithful gay Christians that I've experienced throughout my whole life. Trey, the co-founder of Urban Village, is gay and is one of just my heroes in the faith, he and his husband, Jonathan. And so to see just wonderful fruit from so many faithful gay Christians over the years I begin to tell their stories, too. Now, I know some might scoff at experience because that can be a slippery slope, but all I can do is to tell the stories of people that I have experienced, and then hopefully it can be a civil conversation, and we may end up not necessarily changing where we are, but at least hopefully it's been a place where they're thinking about things a little bit differently, and maybe they're helping me see where they stand and why they believe what they believe. When you are in a pastoral position with someone who has had to bear so much of society's scorn. Is that a learning moment for you when you turn to someone, and you've mentioned before, someone who comes in and looks like they're all put together and everything is fine? Does that help you to understand that maybe that's not just the people who are visibly being hurt and scarred, but that maybe sometimes that there are invisible scars even for people who seem to have it all together and the world is is showering them with accolades? Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I think so. One of the surprises for me speaking about LGBT Christians, was there have been so many of them who grew up in a pretty conservative background, but it was there that they discovered a love for Jesus and that Jesus loved them. And at first I had assumed that when we would talk to some of those folks that they would also have to relearn what it means to have Jesus in their life. But they wanted Jesus in their life. That they were They were there. They just needed a context to really be able to fully live that out. And so that surprised me a bit that They had issues with the church that they came from, but they didn't have issues with Jesus. And so that was a real learning for me to realize that there are people, and this is what I would tell to some folks who may uh, oppose our stance on this, to say, you don't understand people who are just on fire for God and want to be able to live that out in a community of faith. Because I think for some folks, they just assume that if you're gay, that you've just thrown everything out the window. Uh, It's often in relationship that people begin to think about things differently. For our listeners who may be unfamiliar, does the United Methodist Church have a position on homosexual relationships? Yeah, and that's a little bit of a tension, to be honest. So the denomination's stance is would be considered not affirming. And our Book of Discipline or our bylaws says that uh, openly gay people cannot be ordained and that a clergy cannot perform same-gender weddings or unions. There are certainly a number of United Methodist churches who disagree with that stance, as we do, and so we have made a conscious decision to let people know that, that we disagree on that issue with them, and to be honest, that we have also taken stances that are against the denomination's stance on that. So it's a little bit of a tricky place to be sometimes, but we feel like we love the history of our denomination on this issue. We certainly don't agree but we still will want to live faithfully to the call that we believe God has has placed upon us. Now, my more conservative listeners sometimes would characterize any church that takes the positions like you've just taken as being sort of, you're leading with politics. But in everything else that I've heard you say so far in the conversation, I haven't heard you saying that you're leading with a political agenda. It sounds to me like you're leading with love. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I certainly hope so. And I think one of the reasons why we wanted to start Urban Village was that we did not want the center of our church, our faith, to be the rainbow flag. We wanted it to be the cross. And we wanted it to almost be a community of faith where, in fact, people have said this to us, 
I like Urban Village because being gay is boring here. It's not the central thing. A relationship with Christ is the central thing. And so that's what we try hard to communicate first and foremost. In your book, Failing Boldly, you talk about the commitment that Urban Village members have to going to the gay pride parades. And you mentioned that you hand out information about Urban Village at the gay pride parades. But if I remember correctly from the book, you say that you don't track many new members coming in as a result of that. Right. Okay. So if the goal was simply to build the ranks of the church, that's a loss leader. That's a failure. So why keep doing it? Yeah. And that's a, that was also a big learning. The first couple of years we did that, I asked that same question. Like, we are spending money on paper that is either getting on the ground or not many people are taking it to come through our doors. But we learned a couple of things. First, the change that goes through people who walk in the parade from our church. So this past year, we probably had about 100, 110 people from our church walk in the parade. And for especially for people who do it for the first time, sometimes they come a little unwillingly. And so we encourage people just just walk once and see what happens. After they've walked in the parade, the change that comes over them is just amazing. They become evangelists uh, and they didn't even realize it. And they are excited and they are renewed in their own faith. And what I like to say is if somebody's willing to walk in the parade and if they feel so led to tell total strangers that God loves them, then maybe inviting my friend to church isn't such a big deal. If I'm willing to do that, then I can also do this other thing. So it's a great training ground for our own folks and I think helps them fall in love with God again. A, a long hero of mine, a fellow by the name of Miles Horton, who founded the Highlander Folk School, he, he spent several years as a YMCA organizer at a time of deep segregation. And he said that he got nowhere when he tried to convince people with speech and with argument that segregation was wrong. But if he could set up a dinner and not tell them, but mm. he would integrate the dinner and suddenly they were sitting next to a person of, quote, the wrong color, unquote, and they could realize, oh, it's not so bad that suddenly being in that moment of confrontation, that changed them more than any other kind of argument could. And am I hearing something similar in what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. The word evangelism has, and evangelical, both, I think, for some, maybe many in our society have negative connotations. And so in some ways, we've tried to reclaim that to say, this is good news that we have. And so we've not shied away from the word. And so when folks at first hear us talk about that to have you know, we have each of our sites has an evangelism coordinator. And for some folks at first, they're like, Ugh, that's one I don't want. I'll bring coffee for after worship, but I'm not going anywhere near the evangelism coordinator. But once we begin to show them that this is what it is, we're inviting people to the party and we're doing it in a lot of creative ways, then they begin to realize, oh, okay, I, I, I realize it's not standing on the street corner necessarily and telling people that they're going to hell, but there are lots of really wonderful ways to share the love uh, and share this this good news that we have. You have this vision of the church that in order for people to actually have the message sink in, they may need to hear it 5, 10, 15, 100 times. You have to be willing to fail, to go back to the subject of your book, Failing Boldly, you have to be willing to fail 76 times to get to that 77th time where it actually digs in. I'm I'm thinking of that in contrast to a book title by another person who's been on our program, uh, the Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong. He had a book several years ago called Why Christianity Must Change or Die. Mm. Christianity shouldn't be afraid of death. We shouldn't mm. be afraid mm. of failure because we have a Savior who transcended death and who went beyond death and who showed us that we can as well. 
I'm hearing in what you're saying a real hopefulness and a, a, a this is resurrection talk, man. You're talking about about people who have been dead in their lives who are suddenly told that they can live again. Yeah, not only for individuals, but I hope for the church too. Trey and I, when we started, we had one of the very first individual meetings I had was with a retired UCC pastor, and he told me, don't be afraid to be big. And so we thought, what can we, not only this new church, but can we help to renew our denomination? How can we help renew mainline Christianity? And I think we're at a place, because there has been decline, people are willing to say, you know what, there may, some things may need to die in order for new life to, to rise up again. Hopefully, we can begin to be part of the harbinger of that. Is there ever a moment when you as a pastor would look at a situation or a relationship or an action and you would say, that is not of God, that is not coming mm-hmm. from a place of love, and that needs to be called out? I think in a couple instances, it, it, sometimes it's easy, talking about the liberal agenda, it's easy to say, well, there are lots of things now going on in our society that we can call out and say this is unjust or shine light on on racism or uh, any other inju- injustices that are going on in our society. But I think what we also try to do is we did, recently did a sermon series on confession and also to take a look at, at our own stuff, because it is really easy for all of us to look out there at systems or at individuals and point fingers and point things out that are that are wrong, and we do that. It's harder to take a look at your own stuff and your own sin and also do the internal work, the repentance we are calling people to do too. So we try. Sometimes it's hard because it's easier to look out rather than look in in our own faith lives, but we also try to encourage people to do that too. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Christian Kuhn. He's co-founder of the Urban Village Church here in Chicago, and he's author of the new book, Failing Boldly, How Falling Down in Ministry Can Be the Start of Rising Up. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks. If you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you might have figured out that I'm a bit of an odd mix. I'm lefty and progressive in my politics, and I'm conservative and traditional in my theology. I'm a full gospel, Acts 4 and 5 kind of guy. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a new degree program being offered by my friends at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. It's their new Master of Arts in Public Ministry. Hey, I'm in touch with listeners, and I know a lot of you are serving your communities in nonprofits and civic organizations. Some of you are even on the front lines as activists and organizers. You're trying to make the world a better place. The folks at Garrett want to make this world a better place, too, and they know the gospel of Jesus Christ is central to that effort. If you've been wanting to integrate your faith with your work, you'll want to check out their new Master of Arts in Public Ministry. The entire city of Chicago will be your classroom. You'll graduate with a stronger network and a better understanding of how Jesus Christ is speaking to the world of today. Get excited about this. This could be your next step. Go to garrett.edu mapm, the initials of Master of Arts in Public Ministry. That's g-a-r-r-e-t-t dot e-d-u slash m-a-p-m. Tell Katie and Jill I sent you. They're good people, and they'll be glad to tell you more about the new Master of Arts in Public Ministry from Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. Once again, that's G-A-R-R-E-T-T dot E-D-U slash M-A-P-M. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with the Reverend Christian Kuhn. He's co-founder of Urban Village Church here in Chicago. He's author of this wonderful new book, Failing Boldly, How Falling Down in Ministry Can Be the Start of Rising Up. So in your book, Failing Boldly, you 
mentioned that you have a complicated relationship with prayer hmm. and that you don't always feel like you give prayer its proper due. Is that a, a fair characterization? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think there are times when I think this happens for a lot of church folks is that they say, oh, I'll keep you in my prayers or let's pray about that. And they just kind of throw it out there without really thinking through what does that mean? And am I really following through on that? I think one of the things that I talk about in the book was you need to take prayer seriously. For some progressive Christians, they may give lip service to that, but they don't really take it seriously. And so we heard that, Trina heard that, and we thought we really need to have, so we had a, a group of folks that we really felt were prayerful people, and they committed to praying for us uh, every day in the early stages of this church. And Trey and I would send them emails saying, here's where we need prayer, and here's where you can support us. And that, I think it had such an impact on us, and I'd like to believe on how the, the faith community got started. That's wonderful. And so what you're telling me is that you saw sort of visible evidence that these prayer efforts were successful and were helpful. Yeah, I think it's easy. I mean, certainly when you go down the rabbit hole of prayer, people will say, well, that may be true, but I had lots of people praying for this and it never happened. And so it's easy to go to those places. And so on the one hand, yes, we saw wonderful fruit happening, but it was more than just that too, because there were certainly moments too, we said, could you pray for X and X didn't happen? And so then we begin to think about, okay, is God present in our lives? And we would say yes. And we believe it's because folks, we're working on our own prayer lives and others are praying for us too. So certainly prayer is, is a mystery, but it's something that I have taken seriously, but also realizing that in the mystery is a lot of richness too. And so what I'm hearing through all of this is that even when you pray and what you pray for doesn't happen, it's as important that you showed up. Mm -hmm. It's as important that you invested time in that relationship with our divine creator and our savior, that you had a, a moment of being present and vulnerable. As I weave that together, is that uh, touching ground for yeah, you? No, is, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think that sometimes the misconceptions about prayer are people feel like they need to have this unbelievable high yeah. every time they pray. And there's so many times when I've, try, I've been faithful and like I'm, I fall asleep or something just isn't quite doing it for me. In the book, I talk about, I share the story about my grandparents. Mm. When I was in junior high and high school, I would go and spend at least a week every summer with them. And one memory I have of them is that uh, when my grandfather would go to work and I just have this memory of them kissing each other every day and just sharing a little bit. It would never be this wild, passionate kiss. Like, I don't think probably there are fireworks every time that they left for the day. But it's just that faithfulness has always stuck with me uh, and the love that undergirded all of that, too. And I think it's the same thing with prayer, too, believing that God will be there, I will be there. And there may be moments we have these wonderful, transformed hearts. And there may be days we're like, eh, you know, <laughs> I didn't really feel anything today. Well, and this gets back to the, the overall theme of your book and something that, that spoke so strongly to me in your book, and that is if we simply think of an action and its success as the measure of who we are, then we're missing not only—I mean, that's a very American way to think, yeah. right? Self-made man and yeah. all that. But instead, if we see ourselves the way that God sees us, you know, God understands and understood so much about the fact that we had a capacity to fail that he gave his only begotten son mm. to help us yeah. with that. So those moments when we have the failure, if we lose sight of the fact that there's a faithfulness that's there underneath us, and it's not our faith that's doing it. And this mm. is what you said earlier about Urban Village Church, and that you, the more that you tried to rely on your own strengths and didn't rely on God's strength, you sort of got out of the, the right 
relationship. That reminded me of a passage from Isaiah where God is saying, you know, you can either trust the horses or you can trust mm-hmm. me. And if you trust the horses, you're you're sunk. Mm-hmm. Just trust me. I'm hearing very strongly in in your book, Failing Boldly, I'm hearing very strongly in our conversation, just the depth with which you trust that faithfulness of God, even over against the faithfulness of your your co-pastor, your own faithfulness, the faithfulness of your congregation. It's not about your faithfulness so much as it's about God's faithfulness. Yeah. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, absolutely. And often this is all hindsight, but even in the in the life of Urban Village, when I've looked back at moments where I could see myself just getting so frustrated. I mean, in church planting, and I think in churches in general, you're you measure yourself so much by numbers and like how many people are showing up on Sunday and for planting, that's even more true. And when you get caught up in that, then that leads to sleepless nights and really a dry faith. And I look back now, even in the time at Urban Village and, and realize and look at those moments where I get so down on myself and yet also see moments of that's when the moments where God would say, okay, now I can work with this. I can work with your brokenness. I can work with you at your lowest moment. Now we've got, we're going somewhere. In the church world, it means so often we get uh, wowed by the mega church and by the big numbers and the what I call the hero pastors in the book. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with those folks. But when we get so caught up in that, we lose out on, as you said, the faithfulness of God. We've talked earlier in the conversation about people who have been told that they are not good enough, and they've so internalized that that they think to themselves their internal narrative is, I am a failure. That's one kind of scarring. There's another kind of scarring that people can can go through that says, I survived it, I'm still here. And and I'm seeing sort of a tension there. And and I think even about the wounds that Christ himself had in his resurrection. You know, he was nailed to the cross, and then when he rose again from the dead, mm. the scars weren't gone. They were still there. And he invites others to, to touch them. To touch them. Yeah. Exactly. As we're bringing the conversation to a close— I want to talk about the power of being vulnerable with your scars. Mm. And as we think about the way that we wear our failures for others, what wisdom can you share with our listeners about uh, finding the courage and the strength to to do that? Yeah, I think in many ways, vulnerability is at the core, one of the cores of who we are uh, as a church and as Christians, too. If you do demographic research or read anything about uh, generations, and this is a generalization about a generation, but millennials talk about they want authenticity. They want people to be real. So one of the things that we started from the very beginning in worship at Urban Village is time of testimony. And so every single week, in addition to the sermons that the pastor will preach, we give somebody five or six minutes and say, tell us what God's doing in your life. And often those become real stories of vulnerability. People will just share all these intimate moments of their lives. And also we've had folks who will say, I don't really know what I believe. I'm not sure I'm on board with all that Urban Village is about, but I kind of like this community and I'm sticking around. And I think the fact that we let people up front say these things has really been one of the reasons people stick around and want to be a part of that faith, because they know that they can also share their vulnerabilities, that they're not the only ones who don't have it all figured out. And hopefully that begins to build them up. Well, Christian Kuhn, I loved the book, and I found inspiration in it, and I've really found inspiration as well in our conversation. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us Thanks, today. Thanks, David. I really appreciate it. So we've been speaking today with the Reverend Christian Kuhn. He's a United Methodist minister and has been a pastor since 1998. He's the co-founder of Urban Village, an inner-city multi-site church here in Chicago. He's a native Iowan, and he worked in the not-for-profit relations and journalism fields before going into church ministry. He's the author of the new book, Failing Boldly, How Falling Down in Ministry Can Be the Start of Rising Up. 
Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.